Genesis 29, verse 31. Jacob's children. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. She named him Simon. Again she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, this time I will praise the Lord. She named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and two can build a family through her. So she gave him, her servant Bilhah, as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicted me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she stopped having children, she took to her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune, she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy am I? The woman will call me happy, so she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came into the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes, so he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth child. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband, so she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. She named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dina. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. This is going back about 30-odd years to my student days the anthem that we had pumping out in our student house and at college uh, when we were doing A-levels was loaded by Primal Scream. 
And at the start of the song, there's a sample that has these words. It's taken from a film from 1966 called The Wild Angels. And this guy, who actually in the film is a minister, the context is this biker gang have stormed into a church at a funeral of one of their members. And the minister turns around and says, just what is it you want to do? And the leader of the biker gang answers, well, we want to be free. We want to be free to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded and we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. And one of the crowd in the back goes, yeah, baby, let's go. And then the leader says, we're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party. Now, I've just written the song in uh, rereading it that way. But it captures really well, even 30 years on from when that song was produced, and 60 years on from when that film was released, the central pool of the human heart. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do what we want to do. People are complex. Yes, we're like icebergs, if you want that analogy. We're more than what you see on the surface. There's far more going on below. Or like onions, as the conversation with Shrek and Donkey went. Um, you know, with multiple layers. There's behavior you see and motives you don't see. And behind what we do in our lives is the why. The why we do it. The man who is always late and unavailable when there's work to be done might be motivated by their own comfort. The neighbor who is mortified by a surprise visitor um, seeing their messy house might be motivated by their reputation. The colleague who regularly works long hours and sends emails to the team over the weekend is motivated by a need for respect and admiration. The teenager who argues about the curfew time or where they can go at the weekend well, they're motivated by freedom. The parent who never lets their children stay with their in-laws wants control. But even that analysis is too simplistic, isn't it? Because there are often multiple motivations for our behavior, isn't there? Over the overworking colleague might be fearful of losing their job or wanting peace from a chaotic home life. The parent that won't look let others look after their baby could be crushed by inadequacy and needing to prove they are a good parent. We need God, our loving personal creator, to bring his light through his word to help us see ourselves as we really are. That's what we do Sunday by Sunday. To help us understand ourselves, to help us see our hearts as they truly are, which are at the root of all our motivations. And whilst on first reading of this passage in Genesis 29 that Terry brought to us, um, it, it might seem a completely chaotic soap opera of a passage. It actually sheds light on the sin and brokenness of our deep desires. It gives us a wake-up call. Not to sit in judgment on this messed up family, but to consider the things we want because I just want it. It slows us down. It also beautifully shows us the astounding grace of God who doesn't give up on sinners, but freely gives himself to give us a new heart's desire. And back in uh, chapter 29 last week, we left Jacob married with two wives he had been cunningly tricked by his uncle Laban, who on the wedding night switched his younger daughter Rachel for the older, less attractive daughter Leah. 
And after the shock next morning, Jacob was tied into yet another deal to marry Rachel in return for another seven years' work. Jacob, who had deceived his older brother earlier, Esau, and his blind father, Isaac, was facing the painful consequences of his cunning schemes. And as I said last week, it's as if the Lord said to Jacob, yes, I've chosen you and I am sovereignly using your sinful desires and actions for my purposes, but I do not approve of the way in which you have lived. And I must discipline you for it. And those words in verse 30, Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Well, they're the painful backdrop for the next seven years of drama involving the birth of 11 sons, one daughter, one father, and four mothers. <laughs> Jacob did not know the rocky path of parenthood. He'd stumble along. All he knew was that he had heard the Lord say from above the angel's ladder at Bethel, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was the promise given back to him in Bethel, chapter 28, verse 14. So let's look at these struggling sisters and the longings of the heart. And we'll look firstly at what Leah wants. How could you not feel sorry for Leah? In the first place, we read that her eyes were weak, verse 17. Uh, back in chapter 29, uh, which probably means that they lacked a sort of sparkle or glint that was highly prized in that Mesopotamian culture of the time. In any case, it's clear she's not as physically attractive as her sister. She was the girl nobody wanted. And second, her own father uses her as a bargaining chip to coax more years of service out of Jacob. So her week-long wedding reception becomes a celebration of Laban's craftiness. And then she has to put up with another seven days where the pretty sister is the center of attention after marrying her husband as well in verses 27 to 28. It's a nightmare, isn't it? You've got to feel for her. And on top of this, she lives with the knowledge that she wasn't at all desirable to Jacob in verse 30. Jacob's lack of love for Leah is even clearer in today's passage. The literal word used there in verse 31 is hated. Hated. Now, in context, that means loved less. Not that Jacob maliciously detested and abused her, but in contrast to his love for Rachel, it makes any feelings Jacob had for Leah look like hatred. Into this sad situation comes the Lord's light. Look at chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. The Lord, in his love, sees. He hears, in verse 33. He enables Leah to have children. And that verb, saw, in verse 31, is often used right before God acts on behalf of the oppressed. For example, the Lord saw his people Israel just before he liberated them from their slavery in Egypt, uh, in Exodus 2. Here, God opens Leah's womb and makes her a mother before Rachel, giving her the greatest status, again, in that Mesopotamian culture that women could have, the status of being a mother. 
But as we look closer, we see Leah's heart desires aren't satisfied, are they? She's, she has a deeper longing. Did you pick that up in the text? After the birth of Simeon, what does she say? Surely my husband will love me now. Verse 32. And again, look at verse 34. Now at last, my husband will become attached to me. She's so desperate for Jacob's love and approval. By the third son, Levi, she's even prepared to downgrade her expectations to just being attached like someone handcuffed together. Leah, you see, had a hole in her heart, a hole every bit as big as Jacob's over-the-top epic appetite for Rachel. Both are blinded by it. And this passage is a roller coaster, isn't it, of raw emotion in both sisters. There's misery, there's jealousy, there's anger, there's praise. Leah set her heart on getting Jacob's love. And this roller coaster of this raw emotion is, is reinforced by the names given to the sons. We haven't got time to go through them all, but if you were to read the passage, you can see the footnotes. The names given reinforce their emotions. I'm thankful to the commentator Joyce Baldwin for pointing this out. She says, all the names that Leah and Rachel give their sons were in current use at, the at that time, and they permitted a play on words in the Hebrew, which expresses the women's hopes and longings. These names are a commentary of what's going on. Now, when we give our children uh, names, parents think long and hard about the names we give, hopefully. I know um, I, I love finding out the meanings of people's names, especially from different cultures, different backgrounds. They're rich with hope and aspirations and why parents choose them. Emily and I chose Samuel, the Lord remembered, and Noah Comfort, which I think this week just became Noah, became the number one most popular name in the UK for boys now. But it certainly wasn't when um, Noah was born in 2005. But we chose them because of their biblical meanings. Those names had huge significance for us at the time of both of their births, and they still have. We, we wanted in some way, by God's grace, that the meaning of their names would shape something of their lives. That's what parents do. Both Leah and Rachel use the names of their sons to declare their feelings and their desires. For Leah, her, her deep motivation was finding happiness through a prosperous family, wasn't it? She had set her longings and dreams on her husband. It's as if she's saying, if I have babies and sons, then my husband will love me more than my sister, then my unhappy life will, will be fixed. But every birth seems to drive her deeper into loneliness. Yes, Leah prayed to the Lord in verse 33. She uses the personal promise-keeping name of the Lord as well. She knows he's the giver of life. She knows he's the one that's in charge and leading this family. We even seem to think maybe she has some peace with the birth of Judah, whose name means sounds like praise. This time I will praise the Lord. Wow, has she turned the corner is the Lord really enough for her? Has she found his grace sufficient? Well, no. The baby wars get worse. Leah enlists her servant Zilpah to be Jacob's fourth wife, who gives him two sons. 
And then there's this curious incident in verses 14 to 16, um, the incident of the mandrakes where Rachel and Leah come face to face. At this point, they haven't interacted with each other. But here's this climactic moment where they fight over an ancient fertility treatment which was a bit dodgy. You could kill yourself if you ate them. But um, apparently, the, the smell of them, there was something about their scent that was supposed to help fertility. And it's, let's have a, a wrestling match over who gets what. But did you notice Leah's outburst there in that section? What does she say to uh, Rachel? Have a look in verse 15. Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? You can hear the, oh, when actually she, you did the switch with dad. It's, it's, the perspectives are all wrong here. Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Will you, help, will you steal our fertility props? But notice what happens next. That outburst showing how cheated and robbed she felt. So, like her father, using his daughters to pay Jacob to work for him, what does Leah do? She, she bargains with her sister. She hires Jacob to sleep with her. And in due course, she gives birth to two more sons. But even seeing her last son, Zebulun, as a precious gift from God, her heart is still set on Jacob. This time, my husband will treat me with honor. The longing's still there. This functional idol. God's gifts. When you see a child and that gift of God, however it came about, she's still looking for something she hasn't found. The false God of Jacob's love. It's the ultimate value in her life. It's what she really wants, and it can't deliver what she really needs. And God's gifts are freely given, but they are also resisted, because here that loving provision isn't applied to her heart. It's the same with us. We can have so much of God's mercy, so much of his gifts, and they don't touch the surface. We just continue skating on. She keeps his mercy at the level of her comfort. So don't, don't keep God's mercy, his goodness at arm's length. Who do you thank for all the good gifts you've received throughout your life? Is it all down to you? Is it just luck? Is it chance? These good things in life are pointers their presence, their signposts to a good giver who knows what you need, who knows your deepest wants and wants you to know the goodness of his deepest love. We're in as just as much need of his grace as these two sisters. So let's now look at what uh, Rachel wants. Now, Rachel might be able to turn heads with her beauty, but she wants what her older sister has. This is the struggle, isn't it? The irony in the passage. She festers with envy and jealousy. We know what she's jealous 
of because the text tells us. But she doesn't admit that out loud. In real life, people don't say what's really in their hearts, do we? It just comes out explosively. Look at verse 1 of chapter 30. Give me children or I'll die. It's dramatic, isn't it? It's written to court our attention. As she said it, you can hear the sound. She sounds as hungry as Jacob was asking Laban for Rachel in chapter 29. Give me my wife. I want to make love to her. They sound similar, don't they? Similar to Esau running in from the field. Oh, just give me the stew. I'm famished. Here's that appetite, that desire over the top. If Leah was depressed every time she saw Jacob with Rachel, Rachel was depressed when she saw Leah surrounded by four sons in their slings and toddling along with her and stuff. And Jacob flares up, doesn't he? He's quite passive in this passage, not really doing much apart from making love to these different women. But here he says something which again just shows how far off he is. He flares up, in other words, saying, don't blame me. Am I in the place of God? Now, he's using some good theology. Yes, the Lord is in charge. Yes, you're not God, Jacob, thank the Lord. (laughs) But Jacob is using it, can you see, as a weapon in all the wrong ways. He's using his theology to shift blame and responsibility. And the Reverend Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a wonderful Bible teacher and scholar, put it like this. You see, you can have all the right theology, all the right answers, but give them in the wrong voice at the wrong time. You see, Jacob is angry, and the only time he speaks in this chapter, he does it to put his wife down. He does it in a way that belittles. He does it in a way that hurts. Having good theology is not the same as having spiritual maturity. And Grace Church, do you know what? We need to take that on board. We need to take that on board. You might know your Bibles very well, but do you speak God's truth with love and care? Do you think before you speak? Do you pray before you speak to others, particularly on sensitive issues, with words that can be kind and encouraging and thoughtful? If you need to correct and admonish someone, that is to take them to one side, to speak into their life with love so that they might love Jesus more and grow in maturity, pointing out where they need to change and being open to being changed ourselves. If you do that to help someone where they've seen something wrong and hurtful, will you do it with the most understanding, the most care, the most humility you can? Yes, it will be difficult. Yes, it will be painful. We're not called to be steamrollers, flattening people with our words under the guise of, well, I'm just a bit blunt. That doesn't cut it. That's not what we're called to. And under Rachel's anger and envy, under our anger and envy and frustration and the outbursts, fundamentally, there's a resentment to God. We're saying, I am not getting my way. And people need to know it. Instead of Jacob praying for Rachel as Abraham did for Sarah or reassuring her of God's promises and faithful provision for flawed people like them, he's silent. He's flown off the handle and that's all. 
and Rachel forms this cunning plan. She enlists the servant Bilhah um, so that Rachel can build a family through her. She's also pleaded with God. Is this a genuine, sincere prayer? Maybe. God is gracious. Bilhah has two sons. But Rachel's heart doesn't seem to have changed. Verse 8, I have had a struggle with my sister, and guess what? I have won. It's her achievement. It's her victory. Uh, the tennis player on the PowerPoints, Chris Ever. She was one of the USA's leading tennis players during the 1970s and 1980s. She won 18 major championships. She, she won at least one major singles title, a record 13 years in a row. That's how good she was and is. As she faced retirement, she admitted this. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. I, it was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Wow. I admire Miss Everts' honesty there. I admire her self-awareness. We might not be Grand Slam tennis champions, but deep down, we need the wins, don't we? Whether it's in parenting, in relationships, at work, in academic study, with friends, with just being noticed, we need the wins too. You see, Rachel and Leah were sisters struggling to find who they were to find their purpose, to find their significance, to find a love that satisfies. And in that way, they are no different from any of us here in Manchester. Now, if you're looking for this story to give you a morality tale, I'm sorry to disappoint you. There's no list of rules here. Um, who are the heroes? It's questionable, isn't it? Who, whose example are we supposed to follow? I suppose, yes, on one level, this in, uh, account implicitly shows us that polygamy is not God's standard for marriage. Genesis chapter 2, 24 is God's design and a gift in which he presides over. We read there, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, singular, and they become one flesh. You see, the whole history of the Old Testament is the unfaithfulness of human partners to each other and to God's rule. In that history, we see a constant violation of God's good standard. Abraham doesn't trust God for his son, so he has a son by Sarah's servant. The judges had many wives because they wanted to be like a king, uh, like kings in the other tribes and nations around them. Polygamy brings all kinds of trouble. King Solomon is a tragic figure. He may be wise and inspired in what he wrote, but he's definitely foolish and immoral in the way he lives. Multiplying wives, we're told, was part of his rule, which is essentially trusting political alliances as a king. Have more wives, have more nations linked to you. Multiplying horses and chariots, well, that's trusting in military strength. Multiplying gold, trusting in financial security and power. And he believed the lie that he was in charge towards the end of his life. The narrator throughout shows polygamy is a sinful falling short of God's good standard, his laws. It causes distress in family life. It is the result of spiritual apathy 
and it fuels arrogance and self-sufficiency. And at that point, I hope you can think, well, we're not polygamous, but you can hear the echoes of any other sexual immorality. The lover of pornography. The person who's happy having serial relationships, moving from one to another to another without tying down and having commitment, but saying, well, that's okay. I'm not doing any harm. No, these are nothing less than less than God's good standard. Secondly, this story isn't comforting for couples who are struggling with the pain and disappointment of childlessness. Let's be real, it sounds very cold and mechanistic when it's read out. Yes, children are a gift from God. They're a sign of his grace. But does that mean if I can't have children, it's a sign of his displeasure? Is God against me? Well, no, not at all. Not at all. Luke chapter 13, 1 to 5, where Jesus is having this dialogue about the, the people of, um, who were crushed under the Siloam Tower falling on them, and then those who were killed in the temple by Pilate's troops. Jesus won't draw a direct line with sin and what happened. Again, in John chapter 9, when he's questioned about the blind man, who sinned here? Is it him or his parents? He won't draw a direct line on that sin. He will not say, yes, you're bang on. He's as blind as a bat because he's as sinful as hell. He just doesn't go there. But he shows something more powerful. He shows forgiveness. He shows healing. And it's right to sincerely and faithfully pray to God for children. He knows the longings and the pain of our hearts. He hears all our prayers. He is wise. He is loving. He promises to be with us always, even in the hurt of childlessness. And there's there a call to hold on to hope. Don't let the hope of a child be your only hope. And that's something both parents who have children need to hear and parents who are longing for children and people longing for, to be in a marriage or a relationship. Don't make that your only hope. It won't do. It can't carry the weight. God has many good things for you. A child may be one of them. But as Jesus promised in Mark 10, verses 29 to 30, all who have left home or family or children or work for him and the gospel, in whatever way it's cost you to follow him, and in whatever way it feels that you're going without, he says his disciples will be richly blessed in this age. That is, with a new family, his church, who are there to care and look after, and more so in his eternal kingdom. Jesus says, there is hope. And that's actually really where this account takes us. It lifts our gaze to someone more. It creates a longing in us. We should read this passage and go, is that it, really? And that's where we're going to just land. Is it takes us to the praiseworthy son who takes away our disgrace did you notice the name that Rachel gave her, her um, son, uh, yeah, um, that came through uh, Bilpah? The Lord, actually, in this point, 
is the hero of the story in this crooked family. He is the gracious God who keeps his word and starts to grow a family that will bless the world. All four women, remarkably, graciously, have been woven into the fabric of God's plan to save the world. For they, these sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is how it starts. <laughs> Rachel is blessed with Joseph. Um, what's his name? It means, may he add. And Joseph does just that. As the Lord raises him to become the prime minister of Egypt, protecting the nation, saving Jacob's family, his other brothers, from famine. And what does Joseph declare to his brothers at the end of that account where they're meeting face to face? He says this in Genesis 50, verse 20, one of the most powerful things you can hear. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Here's the son who adds by saving many lives, including the flawed tribes of Israel. Leah is blessed with six sons and a daughter, which include the priestly line Levi and the royal line Judah. She praises the Lord for Judah, and yet there will be one in Judah's line who is the greatest son, who is ultimately praiseworthy. You see, this story is meant to create a longing in us that go, who is coming to sort this all out? Lift your eyes and your hearts. Lord, how are you going to do this? Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the high priest and the king of kings, who was despised, rejected, suffered, crucified, bearing our disgrace, taking our sin on himself, facing the hellish judgment of God the Father's righteous anger at our sin in our place, who rose again, who gives eternal life to all who trust him. This is where we should be looking, to whom we should be resting in and leaning on. If you feel unloved, if you feel unwanted, even this morning, the Lord Jesus sees you and you, he calls you today to be in his family. This is how the Apostle John put it in the opening chapter of his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, and we could probably insert there all the schemes and plans of people in the Old Testament but born of God. That is who you are called to be. In Jesus, a child belonging and born of God, loved and wanted. If you're trusting in Christ, know that that is who you are, a wanted, loved child. It's not your feelings that you use to check if this is true. It is what Christ has done. He is with you. He's opened the way for you and all his people to praise the Father, Son, and Spirit as we were created face to face to enjoy his love forever 
and to enjoy that love as one glorious, happy, content, satisfied family. And in a few moments, we're going to take tokens of this achieved work, a wafer and some grape juice, bread and wine, not only to say thank you to the Lord for the work done by Jesus to bring us into that family, but to again say, this is who I am, and I will live out this grace, a child born of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your son Jesus is ultimately praiseworthy, the son who takes away our disgrace, the son who is the fulfillment of the 12 tribes that we've looked at here and their creation, the one who comes to bring us in to your family. Father, draw us near to you. For those far off, would you meet with them? Would you bring your love in a powerful way into their hearts and minds that they would see Jesus as he truly is and believe in his name and receive the gift of being born a child of God? Father, for those who continue to trust Christ, calling themselves followers this morning, would you reassure them of your good plan? Even in the hurts that people carry this morning, the disappointments, the longings, may they know satisfaction and fulfillment and the peace that can only come from you as our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.